Well, after talking about fun and playing and kids, we're about to shift gears in, in maybe one of the most shocking ways as we continue our, our summer series uh, in the 40 days uh, journeys through, uh, through the Bible. Um, you'll notice, probably already have, that that, that idea of 40 days uh, as experienced by Moses, all the way from Moses to, to Jesus, within those 40 days, there's often a really hard period. And, and it's common for those 40 days to be through a, through a desert, and the desert ends up being somewhat of a difficult time. Uh, and our, our study this morning in the book of 1 Kings chapter 19 will center on the hardest time that Elijah, one of the most famous figures in all of the Bible, one of the hardest times that he's ever experienced. And so, um, yay, <laughs> we're, we're talking about discouragement uh, today. And so uh, living in, in the reality of that. If you, if you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we'd love to put one in your hands. And if you don't have a Bible uh, in your home, we would, we would love for this to be a gift uh, to you. Because there's some things that we're going to talk about today uh, that you're going to want to go and, and live into, read and research uh, for, for yourself. But uh, Elijah is... Um, is, like I said, one of the most famous characters in all of the Bible, and rightly so. If there were a hall of fame uh, for followers of Jesus, uh, Elijah definitely would be in it. His, his ministry was marked with some of the most uh, profound, uh, groundbreaking miracles, uh, standoffs, and we'll see in, in our, our conversation today, a standoff with hun against hundreds of, uh, of other prophets, but it's also intersected within his, his ministry with some of the tenderest shepherding care of, of really, other than Jesus, of any other character in the Bible, such that uh, in, if you're studying the life of Elijah, you'll start to be reminded of the ministry of Jesus, and, and they were in Jesus' day. Uh, as Jesus stepped out and started to care for people, and perform these amazing miracles, they called him a modern-day Elijah. Uh, like I said, he's one of the most famous characters in, in all of, of the Bible to the point that as Jesus was preparing for his last 40-day journey, uh, moving toward the, the crucifixion, um, preparing for that, God took him up onto a mountain, what's called the Mount of Transfiguration. And he brought down three historic figures to encourage him. Uh, and it's interesting that Elijah is one of those, and I think not because uh, he shared in the profound miraculousness of his ministry, but because he could speak to and remind Jesus of this very difficult time and that God was with him through it. If we could spend our time rolling out the greatest hits of, and that would maybe be more fun for us to, to center our attention on the great things that Elijah did and for us to sit at his feet in awe and say, we're not worthy. But our text this morning uh, centers on the darkest 
most challenging period of his life. It's hard for a hero to fall, isn't it? And you may think back on times in your life when someone that you admired uh, experienced a, a difficult time. That might have been a, a coach who fell off of their pedestal or a mentor, likely a parent, when you realized that this person you thought was a superhero became superhuman. And there's value in that. There's value in, in us moving from the pedestal to reality because it shines a light on our own frailty, our, the ine inevitability of difficult times, uh, of the difficult times that we'll face in our lives. But Elijah not only shines a light on our own humanity, and if he would experience something like this, uh, so, so will I. So will all of us. But not only to shine a light on reality, but Elijah will, will guide us through, not around, not uh, away from, not to escape from the reality of discouragement and despair, but to shine a light and, and offer us a guide through those difficult times. Christianity has received a, has, has been, um, has been said to be an escapist religion, uh, that you come to a place like this to, to pretend away the reality of life and we're all about joy and celebration. But if you spend any time in scripture at all, you'll find that the followers of God experienced uh, and, and, uh, and, and learned, felt the presence of God, not only on the mountaintops, but in the valleys. Uh, in my mind, as I was reading this, I, I, I turned to Psalm chapter 23, in probably most one of the most beautiful uh, but realistic passages or pictures of a walk with God in all of the Bible. Because it, it, it shows that God is with us and leading us, not only in the green pastures of our lives, yay, that's wonderful, but also through the valleys of the shadow of death. And it says there that we'll fear no evil for, and you can, you've attended a funeral recently, for thou art with me. And so what Elijah does is points beautifully, consistently, he pounds the truth of the presence of God in the midst of Discouragement in the midst of the dark night of the soul, such that our goal this morning would be uh, that when you face yours, and if you are in that right now, the drumbeat of the presence of God will give you comfort and guidance and hope. And so, would you, would you join me in a reading of First Kings chapter nineteen? He says this in verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. Coming off of chapter 18, Elijah uh, had been in a standoff with the prophets of Baal, hundreds of, of these individuals, and had shamed them, uh, embarrassed them. He, they both built altars. And you can go back and read this for all, all the details. They both built altars. Elijah built his, the prophets of Baal built theirs. Uh, and he had them literally dancing like fools around their altar, calling out to their God. 
to see if their God would, would ignite the fire. Uh, and at the end of the text, Elijah has them pour buckets and buckets of water on his altar after they're kind of standing there embarrassed. <laughs> buckets and buckets of water on his altar, and he calls out to God and it says, the Lord's hand was on him and he ignited the fire once and for all, declaring that the Lord that he worshiped was the one and only true God. But he doesn't end there, as it says in the opening verse of this chapter. After Ahab, King Ahab goes back to his wife, he says, he's killed them all. <laughs> he didn't just embarrass them, but he lined them up, and it says he hacked them to death. So I think the gentlemen in the room are going hurrah, and the ladies in the room are going, man, why do we have to go into all that? He killed them. It says that he tells Jezebel, and then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah as he comes off of this great victory, standoff, war with, victory. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. It's a high noon, pistols out. He said, I'm going to come find you by this time tomorrow, and you're a dead man. Notice his reaction. Coming off of this great victory, it says, then he was afraid. Actually, in the Hebrew, it, it doesn't say that he's afraid. It just says that he flees for his life. And the, the people that translate the, the Bible have added fear in there. I think we center on fear as the only thing there's a lot more we'll find that's going on. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Notice how he reacts. He left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under the broom tree. Notice how in the midst of the dark night of his soul, in his discouragement, how he responds so very similarly to you and me. So as he runs, he sits down under a broom tree and asks that he might die. He says, God, kill me. And how many times have you said something like this? It's enough. I can't take it anymore. Oh, man, I don't want to see him like this, but it's so realistic. He says, it's enough. God, why don't you just take away my life? I'm no better than my father's. In verse 5, he says, And he laid down and slept under the broom tree. And behold, an angel of the Lord touched him and said, Arise and eat. God deals very practically with him. He says, You need to eat something. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. God grilled a, a feast for him. And he ate and he drank, and then he laid back down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, for the journey is too great for you. I don't know if those were leftovers or if God cooked another meal for him. And he arose and he ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount, mountain of God. In verse 9. And there he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, 
what are you doing here, Elijah? God, it's hilarious because God sent him there. And he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. Notice how he views his reality. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken uh, your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, how he views himself, and I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Now look, recall back. Who's seeking his life? Jezebel. But notice in the midst of his discouragement and in his despair, how he views reality. And this is going to be important for our study this morning. He says, I, even I, alone am left because they seek my life. In verse 11, he said, Go out and stand on, the, uh, stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke to pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind came an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after... The fire, the sound of a low whisper, a sweet whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak and he went out. The Lord had told him to stand out for his coming, but now he goes out, wrapped his face in a cloak, and he went out to the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice that said in the whisper, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been, repeated it, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, and for the people of God, the people of Israel, forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go. He experienced the presence of God, so God draws near to him. He says, go. Reach way of the wilderness of Damascus and when you arrive you'll anoint Hazael to be king of Israel and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be the king over Israel uh, and Elijah the son of Shaphat Adel Mahalah does anybody else struggle with the names in the Bible <laughs> you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place and the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall uh, Jehu put to death and the one more death and the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death yet you shall leave yet I, I shall leave 7,000 in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him this is the word of the Lord and all of God's people say what, there's several things that that are unpacked in this passage uh, about the dark night of the soul in those seasons when we experience discouragement or burnout when we have whatever is whatever uh, definition you put behind enough is enough when you've reached your end and you are in the pit and the first thing is that it's, it's confusing to me at first 
that he experiences this level of discouragement on the heels of the greatest triumph of his life. He's just been in a standoff and victorious against hundreds of these prophets of Baal. And what it seems to me is that Elijah, Elijah should be experiencing, should be uh, uh, running out his greatest hits. He, sh- he, sh- he should be telling everybody how great God has been, but yet at the, the word of this one lady, and nothing against the ladies in the room, but he's just stood against all of these prophets, and Jezebel comes out and says, I'm coming, I'm coming after you, and he shrinks in his soul. And I'm confused at first because the idea that, that he would go from such a great mountaintop to this deep valley seems out of order. Until I look back at my own seasons of discouragement. And as I was reading this, one of the things that came to me as I was thinking back on my my own life was uh, I had spent a number of years planning to to go and be a missionary. I was called since the call the first time when I was about 16 years old, so I was pretty young. And I spent the rest of high school uh, just dreaming about uh, going and planting a church o- overseas. That's all I talked about. In fact, if you went into my room, if you could stand the smell, at 16, 17 years old, I had my parents buy this huge world map. And on the map, I had pens uh, placed on different countries with yarn to letters, mis- to letters from missionaries that I had collected. So I, this was this consumed everything. Every school project, uh, presentation, everything was about going and being being a missionary. And so when I graduated high school, I uh, joined a mission team as an apprentice missionary. I spent a couple of years overseas, and then met my wife when I came back. And uh, everything about us, we, from our first dates, we were planning on going and changing the world. Go be a missionary. I somehow convinced her. And uh, so we had the blessing to go and lead a, a, a church planting uh, effort in Shanghai, China. And uh, things happened way quicker than we anticipated. God brought the right people around us. Um, and after four years, we were turning the work uh, and the leadership to the, of the churches over to the Chinese. Uh, and God called us back to the States. We, we had been successful. We had been victorious. And so we jumped on a plane, and I took my first preaching job, and I had no idea. I, I thought that I should be on the top, on, on the top of the world. Uh, but when I looked back as I was reading this, I realized, man, I, was, I, I experienced the deepest, the se- a season of the deepest discouragement that I'd ever faced in my life and I wish that I'd had Elijah to tell me this is normal and I know you've experienced the same thing after a graduation or launching a kid that you'd been planning on and worried about getting them onto the next stage of their life or having a child you spend a year trying and then nine months carrying and the baby is born why do I feel the way I feel or with a job promotion or retirement that discouragement often comes on the heels of a success rather than a failure. And if I can realize that, that'll take some of the shock out of discouragement. Because it's the shock that really spirals us 
and scares us, that I shouldn't be feeling the way I'm feeling. I shouldn't be experiencing this. But Elijah shows us that it's normal, and we can counsel our souls and say, whether I should be feeling what I'm feeling, I am where I am. Well, the first thing it teaches us, Elijah shows us, is that this is normal. And it's okay to not be okay right now. But the second thing that he shows us is that when we're experiencing the dark night of the soul, discouragement or burnout, when we're in despair, reality is skewed. We're not thinking straight. This is no blame. This is, this is just the picture. Like we're not seeing things as they really are, and therefore we can't trust our perception or our feelings. That's not to say that your feelings aren't real, but that is to say your feelings aren't realistic because you're experiencing deep despair. And you see this with Elijah. He doesn't, his reality is skewed in several ways. He doesn't see himself rightly. He sees himself as the most important thing that's ever been. He's all that. Like everything relies on me. That's what our ego does when we're faced, when we're in a period of despair. It magnifies our place in reality. And the truth is, you're not nothing, but you're not everything either. There's only been one person in the history of the world that could take that kind of pressure. You're not built for the world to rest on your shoulders. You notice this magnification. It's all, it's all been on me. But the second thing that is skewed in our reality is our perception of others. Notice with, uh, with his support system, there is no one else that minimizes our support system. There's nobody with me. There's nobody around. There are no faithful people. I'm all alone. But then it multiplies our threats. We've already noticed that when it's just Jezebel, but he sees, he sees an army of people that are coming after him. We're not, we're not thinking straight. We can't trust our perception when we're experiencing discouragement and despair. There's no blame in that. That's just reality. But the last thing is that it skews our perception of God as well. You'll notice through this, the, uh, the author is constantly shining a light on the presence of God from the end of uh, chapter 18, that the Lord's hand was on him and God is with him and God is speaking to him and God is feeding him and God is leading him. But everything in the posture of Elijah is he doesn't sense the presence. He to get to a place where he can be assured that God is with him because he doesn't feel him. Why? Because in the dark night of the soul, we don't see reality. We don't feel reality. And if this is the case, 
Once again, there's no shame in the experience of discouragement, none at all. What you're experiencing is completely normal. Feel what you feel. Embrace your feelings in that moment. I feel like a counselor right now. Just realize. This is, this is his experience, though. Even though you can't trust what you feel, feel what you feel, but counsel yourself not to make any life, huge life changes in the midst of your discouragement. Don't make decisions about the reality and the truth of your relationship. Limit your decision-making in your season of discouragement. But the second thing, excuse our reality, but it also, we have a tendency to self-sabotage, which Elijah shows us, to self-sabotage when we're experiencing despair and discouragement. The first thing that he does... Uh, after it says he, he flees, it says that he goes out and what does he do with his servant? He leaves his servant behind. Well, no wonder you feel all alone, Elijah. <laughs> like he has this one guy that's been with him, which I'll highlight that in, in just a minute. He's got this one guy and he leaves him behind. He says, I'm all alone, God. Of course you're all alone because you isolated yourself. And how many times in your periods of discouragement have you done exactly the same thing? Rather than pick up the phone, rather than take the invitation to go to lunch rather than stay engaged in worship in small groups you say no I just don't, I just don't feel like it we self sabotage but the second thing what does he do he stops eating I do not have that problem <laughs> okay but we, we sabotage our health. I and mean, mine's Cheetos and pancakes and all of that. And so, by the way, I'm, I'm being vulnerable with you. Uh, when you see me gaining and losing weight, it's not always because of discouragement. But I can guarantee you when I'm facing a season of discouragement, I eat. He doesn't. He stops eating. But not only does he stop eating, he stops moving forward. So we lose that momentum and stay in that place. We sabotage ourselves. Because our feelings are saying, this is it, this is all. There's no one, there's nothing. This is the end. Everything is magnified in the midst of despair. And what does he do? He listens to that and makes a decision to sit down and he tells God, why don't you just kill me? Which is why I think he's not afraid to die. When the translator says he's afraid, I think there's more than fear. That idea of it's enough says it's really depression, despair, discouragement. And if we can hear, if we can observe these things with him, it'll take the shock out of that season and, and let us know that it's okay to be on our face. It's okay to experience these things. But that's not enough for me. I don't, I don't want to just be okay not being okay. I want to know that God is going to lead me through. And that is exactly what happens. And this is the entirety of this text, but what happens uh, from this point on. Elijah experiences uh, the patient. I want, this, I, want you to, I want you to mark this down or remember this. The patient. Persistent caring presence of God in the midst 
of his discouragement. He experiences the patience, the patience of God. God is persistent. He's unyielding. And the real contrast, God doesn't give up on you even when you're ready to give up on yourself. But his presence is caring. Oh, he's tender with him. In contrast to what my skewed reality is that God is ashamed of me, that God is angry with me, that God is done with me, that God has had enough. God is not the one in this text that's had enough. It's him. And this reminds me of the, there's a prophecy that's uh, uh, short that's the, uh, that's recalled in the book of Ma about Jesus that's recalled in the book of Matthew that a bruised reed I don't remember where the prophecy is from uh, but a bruised reed he will not break Jesus the Messiah a bruised reed he will not break a smoldering wick he will not snuff out that is to say that God meets us tenderly in our place of woundedness that he's careful with us when we're fragile that he's caring for us in practical ways we see from, from food to leadership he's caring for us in the ways that we need him the most so that on the other side of our discouragement when we look back we'll see the marvelousness of God working with us all along I went through a, a, a particularly hard uh, time in ministry a few years back, after which God did some, I think, miraculous things uh, and showed up for me in some ways that actually led me here. Um, and just before we moved to, uh, to Monroe, I was, we had some car trouble, and um, so I, I went to a mechanic that I... Um, uh, that I frequented and he says it's going to be a couple of hours um, and had a helper of his take me to a movie theater down the street so that I could burn some time watching movies so we get in the uh, car and this guy's going to take me he was obviously coming off of a really rough life and had the signs of uh, of having at least experienced addiction of some sort he just had the markings on his in his mouth and, and his face uh, I don't know what it was that caused me to, to tell him. I said, he, he asked what I was doing, and I said, man, I'm, we're about to move uh, to Atlanta, and God has just done some really, really amazing things in my life. After, I just, I feel like I've been kicked around and have had a really rough season, but God, God showed up in the end. And I, I kid you not, he pulled, he pulled the car over, and I, I think he may have been an angel, a weird angel, but an angel. He pulled the car over and he had the most intense look on his face. He looked me in the eyes and he said, you've been in the tunnel. 
And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I have no idea. He said, in, in the addiction circles, we talk about the tunnel. He said, you, do you know what it's like in the tunnel? And I was like, I, I really just want to go to a movie right now. <laughs> I regret having disclosed anything. And he says, in the tunnel. Intense, zeroed in on my eyes. In the tunnel. It's dark. This is just practical. It's dark in the tunnel. And you can't see nothing. And I said, Okay. I mean, I'm, tra I'm tracking with that. And he said, but do you know what's going on outside of the tunnel? And then I'm the epiphany. He says, God's been tracking with you all along. He's never left you. You just couldn't see him because <laughs> you're in the tunnel. <laughs> he said, but now you're out of the tunnel. And he says, look back. Look back on your journey and you'll see. God was working all along to bring you to the place that you are right now. That's the picture of a light. He'll never leave you or forsake you. Work all things together for the good of those who love the Lord. He's bringing his perfect plan into action in your life. But when you're in the place of despair, when you're in the tunnel, you can't see him or feel him. That does not mean that he's not there. It just means you're in the tunnel. And that's what you see. The patient, persistent, caring presence of God shows up look he takes him 40 days he didn't Elijah didn't need God didn't need Elijah to go anywhere for him to sense his presence it's a lot of words God didn't need God could have met him and tried to meet him at every step along the way God didn't need him to go to the mountain Elijah needed to go to the mountain and God was patient and persistent and caring and taking him to the place where he could regain his sense of the reality, the truth of God's presence. It's patient, persistent, caring presence of God. It takes us as we are. Oh, and how great that God doesn't say, I wish you were different. I wish you were better. I wish you weren't going through this. All the things that we say to ourselves, God says, I take you exactly what you are. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm going to be with you. We're going to make it through this. How? I don't know. But I'm not leaving you. Oh, is that gorgeous? <laughs> but secondly, they go to the mountain. And it's one of the most profound, it's a well-known section of Scripture that God says, he says, stand at, the, at the, the mouth of the cave and I'm gonna show myself to you. I'm coming near. He's been there all along. But then he shows, he, God says, sends a wind that rips across the landscape. And then an earthquake that he had to have been scared out of his wits. This is one of the strangest, <laughs> this does not, I, I, granted, I'm just now realizing this does not seem very caring on God's part. <laughs> he's already, he's, he's had enough and he goes through this. But this, the, the point of this is beautiful. Sends the wind, sends the earthquake, sends the fire, 
which if you spend time with other characters in the Bible, you'll see that God has spoken through all of those things at different points in Scripture. David talks about uh, the, the quake that shakes the cedars of Lebanon, and God is in that. The, God is called the whirlwind, and the Holy Spirit comes often in a rushing wind. And the fire, when Moses would speak with the Lord, it said that a, a pillar of fire would descend. God's spoken, and you know, the, the, the burning bush. God has shown up in all of those ways, but none of those ways were the way that Elijah needed him right then. The patient, persistent, caring presence of God who comes to us where we need and how we need. God speaks to you in the way you need it. And there's a time that God may need to quake you. There's a time that God may need to send you. Sometimes God needs to speak in a loud voice. But how beautiful is it that he comes to him as a father with a sweet whisper. Take counsel. God is patient. Persistent. Caring. In your time of need. Ah, it's beautiful. And if you, if you take this experience and, and pull out of it for your own, if you're in that right now, this could be a roadmap through your own discouragement to find the Lord and find hope. And if you're not in it now, put this one in your back pocket because you will be in it eventually. That is reality. And so for you and me, there are some things I think that we can pull out of this to press into uh, our reality or eventual experience. And the first is that we need to give us a break. God's gonna give you some things in this. You need to give yourself a break. What you're experiencing is not unnatural. Take the shock out of uh, this feeling of discouragement or despair. Give yourself a break. Because if you don't, then the shame, embarrassment, or shock is going to accentuate and magnify what you're going through. It's going to make it worse, and it's going to make it longer. Give yourself a break. There's a movie with... Um, for years years ago uh, with Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin uh, called The Edge. Uh, and in it, uh, they, uh, their little plane crashes, several of them, uh, and um, Alec Baldwin and Anthony Hopkins are, uh, have survived and, and are running from a bear that's chasing them that's, that's going to kill them. And they, after... Um, after barely escaping from this bear, they uh, get through and creek and are sitting at the top of this hill. And uh, the way the scene goes, Alec Baldwin uh, sits down and is just ready to die. It's very much like Elijah. He's just, he's just done. And he's sitting there discouraged. And, and Anthony Hopkins uh, looks at him and says, do you know why people die in the wilderness? And Alec Baldwin looks at him and he says, because of bears, man. <laughs> B 
because they freeze to death, dude. I mean, look around you. And Anthony Hopkins says something that I, I if you've done, if you've been in my office for some sort of counseling, um, I've probably said this to you. No, he says, they die because of shame. Because they regret the decisions that they made to get into this situation or they regret the stuff that they did that made it worse. They get embarrassed and because they're embarrassed, they sit down and they freeze to death, but they die of shame. Give yourself a break. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be dumb when you're not okay. I can't believe I said that. Yeah, I can't believe that I felt that. Yeah. Don't we need somebody to say, we do dumb stuff when we're in the midst of discouragement and despair, and it's okay. Give yourself a break. There's no fingers wagging in Elijah's face. He believes all this kind of dumb stuff, and God never, it's okay to not be okay. Give yourself a break. Secondly, what God gives him is space. So I want to say this to you. Give yourself some space. God could have met him anywhere along the journey, but Elijah needed to be out of the circumference of his threat. He needed some distance between the pressures and the people that are coming after him. Give yourself some space. It's okay for you to take a step back. It's okay to retreat. It feels like a loss, doesn't it? It's okay to retreat because it doesn't all hang on you. God loves you, but he doesn't rest the fate of a ministry, of the world, of anybody on your shoulders. You are not the Savior. You're not nothing, but you're not everything either. It's okay to get some distance, some space. Thirdly, give yourself some time. That's what the, as much as anything else, that's what this 40 days is. It speaks to the fact that uh, that it's going to take some time for you to heal. And it will take some time in the midst of despair and discouragement for you to regain your senses and experience God the way you've experienced him in the past. For you to counsel, for us to counsel our souls and say, this is going to take a bit. If you look with uh, Elijah, you could, you could see he, he didn't get into this pit uh, after just one day. And he's not going to get out of it quickly either. Give yourself some time. And lastly, at the end of this text, and I normally, when I'm speaking, I normally don't introduce new information at the end of a, of a sermon, but I'm going to give you this. We've already read it. But God did something that was really amazing that counteracted his self-sabotage. At the end, he, he says, I'm going to send you, and you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna bring Elisha uh, under your wing. So the last thing I want to tell you is give yourself a friend. How practical is that? Like the very thing that we tend not to do the, the, in our self-sabotage, that we tend to isolate ourselves, God says, I'm gonna counteract that. Give yourself a friend and a friend who's not in the tunnel. A friend who can pick you up and can speak when you're ready, can speak truth into your skewed perception. A friend who 
can carry you on their shoulders and prove to you, and this is really big in, in the place that Elisha plays in, in Elijah's story. Why do they have to have such similar names? Because he was his protege, and it's, if you look back, Elijah was, was one of the only heroic figures in the Bible who was a lone wolf. Like Moses had Joshua, David had Jonathan and his mighty men, Jesus had the disciples, Paul had a, a group of young men that he mentored. Nobody goes until Jesus sends out the, uh, the, his disciples two by two because it's not good for man to be alone, but Elijah goes it alone, and no wonder he ends up in this place, and God in this last season of his life says, I'm going to give you a companion who becomes one of, this becomes one of the most beautiful relationships in the Bible in a picture of the truth that you and I need someone. We need someone on the mountain. We need someone especially in the valley. And that is why we're here. That's why, that's why you got in your car and came to a place like this because there's something in your soul that connects with your need for fellowship, for relationship, for companionship as we walk through the mountains and the valleys of our reality. And if you're, if you're online, I, you're thinking, watching online, you're thinking exactly the same thing. And eventually God's going to call you off of the sofa or, or office chair and into a fellowship like this because it is not good for us to be alone. As we experience the struggles and challenges of seasons of despair, we need not only for God to be persistent, we need for another human to be present with us along the way. Can I hear you say amen? So if you would join me on your feet. I want to pray this prayer uh, over as a prayer of reality. And here in the next few moments, we're, we're going to offer communion at the tables to my right and, and to my left. And the, the table is a picture of that need, that need for us to, uh, uh, to experience the patient, persistent, caring presence of God, where he welcomes us to him, not with a wagging finger, but with open hands to welcome us. But the table is that picture of fellowship as well because we came into this room and take communion at that table in celebration that like the disciples sat around a table together that we here at Grace Monroe, we, we sit at a table together. And it's a renewal of that commitment to each other. No matter what, whatever you're experiencing, we're family. Whatever we're experiencing, you are not, whatever you feel about it, you are not alone. Why? Because God is with you. Yes. You're not alone. Because we're in this together. And so we welcome you. Join us, join us at, at, the, at the table. Let's pray. Father, as we, oh, as we step out of, of this, this text and this experience of Elijah, would you, would you ring these truths in our ear? Would, they call, would you cause them to be echoes 
in our places of discouragement and despair so that we will more easily sense you and feel you, press this truth of your patience and care into our lives. As we take the emblems of the death of Jesus and the covenant in Jesus in your blood, as we do this together, would you bind us together as a people on this road, side by side. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.